Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces, and I am joined over Zoom by Stephanie Carvin for the final episode of our Muskoka Chair Chats. We're going to squeeze this into the end of August, and so we're joined once again by my colleague, Charisma Mathen. Stephanie, what are we talking about today in our final chat? Well, we're going to end by looking at Section 15, which is the equality rights under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and about equality of the law. And then we're also going to look at remedies. So how do you fix things once a decision has been taken? Or at least I think that's what it means. I'll find out. I I really, I'm not an expert here. And of course, the initial discussion we have to have is what's our theme animal? our Muskoka-oriented theme animal for this episode. And we actually had a bit of an email debate about this because it's hard, actually. It's really hard to find an animal for equality rights for reasons that we'll discuss. Equality rights, great promise, perhaps hasn't delivered to the extent that many people hoped. On the other hand, remedy is pretty powerful, right? So so I think, what did we agree on, guys? I wanted murder hornets because that's the best (laughs) remedy in my mind. And that was Charisma's idea. So I was voting murder hornets. Yeah, that's not really reached... Muskoka yet. So in tribute to our theme of Muskoka yet, chairs. Yet. <laughs> we, we're we're going to go with a less invasive species. Uh, and so I think we would decide it on moose. So here we are, the moose. Okay. How, how do the moose aren't an invasive species or like murder moose? That could be the next thing. How do you right. remedy that? Well, they can be I, I, deadly. They, can, they be can be deadly. That's why it's good for remedies, right? It's it's big, it's powerful, it's reasonably gentle. You just don't want to hit it with your car. They're pretty imposing. Like I used to live in New Brunswick, and when you would see them on the highway, it it was it caught you up short, which is actually a good way to think about equality rights, at least in the abstract. <laughs> okay, we tied with, it together. With we that tied it very awkward now. segue. <laughs> Let's get into section 15. So maybe Charisma, the best place to start is with the text of section 15. So if you could share with us exactly what section 15 says. Absolutely. So there's two clauses to section 15. We'll go with section 15, the first clause, which is the primary clause. It says every individual is equal before and under the law and has the right to the equal protection and equal benefit of the law without discrimination. And in particular, without discrimination based on race, national or ethnic origin, color, religion, sex, age, or mental or physical disability. So it's quite a mouthful as opposed to, say, the 14th Amendment of the United States, which which guarantees equal protection of the laws. Right. Uh, And so perhaps the first point to be made here is we've talked about equality rights in other contexts at the very beginning of our conversation on the Charter. You noted that the human rights codes, the provincial statutes that guard human rights in many of the provinces and also at the federal level also guard equality. In fact, they're principally equality devices, right? In terms of all the rights we've been talking about, the things that we call human rights acts are largely about anti-discrimination and equality rights. How is Section 15 different then? So why does it matter? Why is it important that it be codified constitutionally? Well, Section 15, of course, applies to the state in all of its respects, whereas human rights codes generally apply to more narrow spheres of activity, namely employment, receiving services, and education. So there's just many more things that will be covered by Section 15. It also has, in fact, four distinct equality rights. It guarantees equality before the law, equality under the law, equal protection of the law, and equal benefit of the law. 
which was done for very deliberate reasons to, to try and push our equality jurisprudence away from a very cramped interpretation under the Canadian Bill of Rights, which we've talked about, which only guaranteed a, a couple of equality rights. So Section 15 was also the subject of a lot of debate and focused advocacy, particularly by women's groups in the lead up to 1982. And they were very clear that they wanted the right to be as broad as possible. So it applies to more things that the state does than human rights law. And I think it's fair to say that it will apply in broader contexts than human rights legislation. And of course, the, on the flip side, the human rights codes in the provinces apply also to private sector enterprises. So for example, if they were to refuse to offer services based on racial animus, there could be a human rights code complaint, whereas the charter is confined to governing the conduct of the Canadian state. And so it's subject matter broader, perhaps, but in terms of the persons to whom it applies and regulates, it's section 15 is actually narrower in some respects. It's narrower, that's right, and that it doesn't apply to private parties. The way we think about it in human rights codes is you enter into the public space by, for example, offering rental accommodation or opening up some kind of retail service. Stephanie. So if I'm reading this right, it seems like a lot of the rights we looked at before, the right to security of the person, the right uh, to be free from unreasonable search and seizure, this is more of a process, right? It's more about equality of process. Is that a better way to distinguish it from the other kind of rights that we looked at? I'm not sure what you mean by process, but I would say that Section 15 is actually a very powerful way to interrogate the substance of laws, particularly where they offer benefits or protections to groups of people. Section 15 is a check on the government's ability to target that provision of services. And importantly, even if the government has not intended to discriminate against a particular group, you can nonetheless find that the effect is such that a group has been excluded uh, in a way that is discriminatory. So I would actually say that it's more of a substance right than a process right. Charisma, so one of the things about Section 15 is it, it, it had a lot of promise, so it was perceived as having a lot of promise. But since then, there's been a substantial amount of criticism about how the courts have applied Section 15, that perhaps it hasn't lived up to that promise. And maybe I'm dating myself here in, in terms of my understanding of how Section 15 has applied, but certainly in the space I work, which is national security, Section 15 seems to be argued all the time and never has any traction, uh, in part either because the court just simply declines to agree that Section 15 applies, or the issue is resolved on the basis of some other legal principle, often another charter right or some other principle like administrative law principles. So it hangs out there with great promise, but it doesn't seem necessarily to have realized that promise. Is that a fair critique? I think it's fair to say that Section 15 started off with a real bang, and the first decade of its existence, it actually came into effect three years later than the rest of the charter, by the way, so from 1985. The first decade, I think, was incredibly dramatic. It was a real shift from the jurisprudence under, say, the Canadian Bill of Rights. But then I think almost because of the power within Section 15 to potentially render all kinds of laws unconstitutional, we started to see more cautious approaches to it by courts. And we also started to see a number of split decisions on the Supreme Court as to 
what it takes for something to breach Section 15, and in particular, the use of that word discrimination. What does it actually mean for a law to discriminate? So I would say that, yes, Section 15 has been fairly subject to criticism, both in terms of its actual results and also some of the very technical analysis that is required to overcome the hurdle of proving that your equality rights have been violated. So what is the threshold then? That's a really good question. (laughs) And I'm actually not trying to be facetious. So you you have to first show that you've been somehow denied a right to equality before the law or under the law. That's usually not difficult, depending on what the actual state action is. But then you have to show that the law is discriminatory. And there's frankly been a lot of division on the court as to what exactly that means. I think it's fair to say that if the law has an effect on you that is linked to one of these personal characteristics that is unfair, does not take into account pre-existing conditions of disadvantage that subjects you to some sort of diminution of your human dignity. Those are the kinds of things where the court generally will recognize that the law is discriminatory. Then, of course, you also have to get to the Section 1 stage where the government can justify uh, a violation of Section 15. But we still don't actually have, I would say, a clear-cut approach to how to interpret that question of discrimination, especially in harder cases. So if the law clearly reflects animus towards a group, not many laws do, or if it fails to take into account pre-existing disadvantage, that's really important, for example, in the case of disability, where you might have laws that are neutral on their face, but when you look at how they actually apply, a person is unable to benefit from the law because of their disability, that's a case where the courts have been fairly clear that will at least count as prima facie discrimination. But other sorts of laws, the court sometimes just isn't willing to recognize it as discriminatory. So in looking at Section 15.1, it actually specifies what kinds of groups may be subject to discrimination. So it's not actually just any group. So it's race, national or ethnic origin, color, religion, sex, age, or mental or physical disability. So we have those categories. Are there categories that are missing? Are there groups that have tried to invoke Section 15 but have failed to do so because they don't fall on that list? There are. So let me first just say you're absolutely right that the presence of what we call grounds of discrimination, that are these personal characteristics that are listed in Section 15, are really important to proving your case. So it's not just that the law treats you in a negative way. That negative effect has to be related to one of these personal characteristics. So it's a negative effect on you because of your race or because of your religion or because of your sex. So that's really important in terms of confining the scope of Section 15. The other important part about that list is that it is not an exhaustive list, because if you actually look back to the text of Section 15, it guarantees the equality rights without discrimination, and in particular, without discrimination on the basis of the list. And what the court did in one of the very first equality cases 
is it noted that there could be other personal characteristics that are recognized as being analogous to the listed personal characteristics. So in that case, it's a case called Andrews. They said citizenship is a ground on which you can experience discrimination by the state that will be a violation of your equality rights. In another early case, the proposed ground was province of residence. There was an interesting case about people charged with murder who had different procedural options available to them based on their province of residence. Uh, That was a case in which the Supreme Court ruled that province of residence is not a prohibited ground of discrimination. So the court has developed a test as to when it will recognize something as an analogous ground of discrimination. I think one of the most famous probably is sexual orientation, which was recognized in 1995 as a prohibited ground of discrimination. So it's recognized for all time as being part of that list in Section 15. So that's an interesting case. And you guys gave me some homework. And for once I did it, which is the Vreen case. And having gone through it, this was an individual who was uh, fired for being gay. He worked, I believe, at a Catholic college. And he said this was illegal. Alberta had a human rights code, but it excluded homosexuality as a basis for discrimination. And so they took that to the Supreme Court. And Section 15 in the decision is all throughout, and they are balancing a bunch of different rights, Section 1 versus Section 15. So can you explain how that worked in that case? Because it it was pretty interesting to read, but as a non-expert, I guess parts of it I found a little confusing. So in 1995, the court recognized sexual orientation as a ground of discrimination in a separate case that it then applied to its full effect in the Vreen case. So Vreend, as you say, was a case involving a school teacher who was fired for the fact of being gay. And he tried to launch a human rights complaint, right? This is not a state actor that's involved. It's a private entity. So he tried to use the human rights regime available to him in Alberta to argue that his dismissal was against the human rights protection. The Alberta Human Rights Code at the time did not include sexual orientation as one of the grounds on which you have human rights entitlements. And so the issue was whether that exclusion of sexual orientation was a violation of his equality rights under Section 15. So it's this interesting intersection between human rights protection and charter protection. And what the Supreme Court of Canada held in the Reen case is that yes, for a human rights code to exclude people on the basis of their sexual orientation when they include people on the basis of their race or religion and other characteristics, that does discriminate against LGBTQ people. And it was in the 1990s. This was a pretty dramatic moment for the charter, for LGBTQ people, for the full effect of equality rights in Canada. There was also, and this gets into our second topic, a really interesting remedial question that arose, which is whether the Supreme Court should just strike down the entire human rights regime or read in the word sexual orientation into the grounds that are protected under the Alberta Human Rights Code. And ultimately, the Supreme Court decided it could, in fact, read in that those words kind of amend the Human Rights Code, if you want to take a really practical point of view, 
And that is an example of the Supreme Court's remedial powers that it has under the Constitution. So that raises the second part of our podcast, which is remedies. But just before we get there, you've mentioned that this is 1990. This is a fairly progressive decision to recognize gay rights in this way. And I'm wondering, when I look at the second section of 15, so the affirmative action programs, it says, Subsection 1 does not preclude any law program or activity that has has as its object the amelioration of conditions of disadvantaged individuals or groups, including those that are disadvantaged because of race, national or ethnic origin, color, religion, sex, age, or mental or physical disability. And that's interesting because it's basically saying that we have put programs in place which help these people who have been historically disadvantaged. And yes, there may be a a moderate discriminatory element to it, but those programs are still okay under this charter. And I think that raises two questions. First, this is 1982 we're talking about. That's a fairly progressive thing to put in uh, a a constitutional document, frankly. And I'm wondering, was that a controversial element? I'm very, I'm so young. I'm just so young. I don't remember these things. And then secondly, how has that played out in any court trials? Because it is effectively a a different kind of discrimination, but one that's meant to, I think, address historical wrongs. Yeah, I think it's safe to say it was a direct response to the huge battles going on in the United States over affirmative action and whether under the 14th Amendment, the state could institute programs, for example, federal contract programs that would require the recipients of the federal grant to make certain provisions for minority employees, right? Is that just racism by another name? Because you're requiring the law or some benefit to correspond in some way to a person's race. Is that just discrimination? Does that violate, in the United States context, equal protection of the laws? And what Section 15 sub 2, that's the second paragraph of Section 15, does is it says the equality guarantees in Section 15 sub 1 don't preclude, don't prohibit the possibility of ameliorative programs. It doesn't actually use the term affirmative action in its text, but in what we call the margin notes, if you actually look at a copy of the charter, you'll see in the margin note, it says affirmative action program. So it's very clear this reference to a term that would have been in wide use in Canada, but with an American reference point, you see that there was a step taken in Canada to, as much as possible, try and avoid those really fraught debates in the United States over whether you could guarantee equal rights for people, but also permit the state in some cases to design programs that would have a different impact on people on the basis of their personal characteristics. Now, how has it been used? It's interesting. So it's often arisen in cases where the government sets up a benefit program and a group claims that they were unfairly excluded. A lot of the cases involve Indigenous peoples, where the state sets up, let's say, a casino program, and the beneficiaries are limited to some Indigenous groups and not others. And what you've had is those excluded groups coming forward and saying, we're being discriminated against. And there are at least some Supreme Court cases where the court has said, well, there's no discrimination here because of the application of the ameliorative program. If the state is designing something as an ameliorative program, 
you can't launch a claim under Section 15. That's actually a problem because it means if the program is designed to be a benefits program, you can't challenge your unfair exclusion from it. And that's been a concern over the last decade or so. And in a very recent case, uh, the Supreme Court finally clarified that the affirmative action clause of Section 15 doesn't provide an absolute immunity from challenge for the program, but it does exist to just remind us that discrimination has a particular context in Canada that is not as, let's say, absolute or rigid as it may be in the United States. I just love the idea that we have something in our charter that's kind of being passive aggressive towards the United States. That's entertaining <laughs> to me. But thank you for that. I, and I guess like we're, we're going to move on now to, to remedies. And if I can just be so Oshawa as to ask, what is a remedy? A remedy is what the court will order so that the wrong that you've suffered can be repaired. So it's a redress for the wrong done to you. And of course, in terms of a constitutional challenge, it will be against either a law or state action. In this case, we're generally talking about laws. The Constitution itself has a clause. It's called the Supremacy Clause that says the Constitution is the supreme law of Canada and all other laws that are inconsistent with the Constitution are of no force or effect to the extent of that inconsistency. It's essentially saying, in order for something to have effect as a law, it has to be consistent with the Constitution, which implies that the minute you find that a law is unconstitutional, you have to strike it down. The court has actually given a much broader scope to the idea of constitutional supremacy. And it's carved out for itself a whole bunch of things it can do in the course of providing redress for that wrong. So yes, it can strike down the law in its entirety, but the court has said it can also narrow the interpretation of the law, what we call reading down, in order that the interpretation of the law is now consistent with the Constitution. It can, as it did in Vreen, it can read in certain words or phrases, sometimes to very complex degrees, to ensure that the law is consistent. And perhaps most dramatically, the court has said that it can delay the effect of its remedy. It can suspend the remedy for a period of time to give the legislature a chance to respond and to avoid what the court views as an undesirable gap where the law will not have effect. That's something about which I personally have a lot of concerns, and I've written about that, and I rant to my constitutional students about that every year. But that's a really important part of the whole picture of constitutional remedies in Canada. So Charisma, so let me probe that a little bit, the idea of suspending a remedy. So the idea of suspending a remedy, as you mentioned, is to avoid a gap. And we know from prior Supreme Court jurisprudence that one component of the rule of law is that there be law. And so if a law were to be struck down, the risk is a vacuum. And so the idea, I suppose, for the court is 
but we don't want to create a vacuum. On the other hand, we have to acknowledge that this provision is unconstitutional. So whose job is it really to correct it? We can't be too aggressive in reading in or reading down law because then we've usurped the role of uh, sovereign parliament and parliament being the only democratic branch of our state. We don't want it to be too aggressive in the reading in or reading down. So we're going to suspend this declaration of invalidity, the striking down of this law to give Parliament enough time to ingest our ruling and come up with a different position that's constitutionally sound, perhaps a position that we wouldn't even have thought of because we're an adjudicative body and, and not a deliberative legislative body. So is that not a reasonable position to take when you're trying to reconcile on the one hand, constitutional supremacy as articulated in this provision, which is Section 52 of the Constitution Act of 1982, on the one hand, with the underlying preoccupation with parliamentary supremacy, which at core is really about democratic legitimacy. No. <laughs> okay, go for it. And, and here's why. So the first time that we saw the development of this idea, you could suspend the effect of a declaration was in a constitutional case called the Manitoba Language Rights Reference, where for over 100 years, Manitoba had basically flouted the terms of its entry into confederation, which were that it should publish all of its laws in French and English, and it just blithely published them in English only. So when that finally came before the Supreme Court in 1984, the court was faced with a very unpalatable choice in recognizing this deficiency that would on its immediate declaration, render the entire system of provincial laws in Manitoba of no force and effect, right? Because that's what the Supremacy Clause requires. So facing that admittedly extreme situation, the court said, in situations of extreme peril to the rule of law, as you say, which does require a system of law to be in place, we can declare these laws unconstitutional but suspend the effect of our remedy for such time as those laws to be translated and republished, right? I get that. That's great. But of course, once this step was taken, you have the suspended remedy being used in all manner of cases that don't present nearly the same threat to the rule of law. Let's be clear. If we strike down a criminal provision, that doesn't affect the rule of law. That may provide a gap as a political matter, but there's very few cases where striking down a provision, even an entire legislative regime, presents the kind of void that would threaten the rule of law. The other point I would make is that the court invokes this idea of deference to parliament. But if you look at the language it uses, concealed within that is this nudge, this idea, well, of course, parliament should want to respond. And we're actually going to set out the timetable in which it must respond because we're going to suspend it for six months, 12 months, whatever. So the idea that the court is not still very much directing the legislative agenda is just not persuasive. And, and for me, where this really hit home was in the Carter case, which was a case in 2015 where the court struck down the law against medical aid and dying saying this law was cruel. It subjected people to intolerable suffering, but it decided to suspend the effect of that for a year, which to me was just such an unfortunate moment and showed that 
the Constitution, like our notion of constitutional supremacy, has almost become degraded. And I know that's an extreme sort of comment, but I really have an issue with how commonplace the suspended remedy has become. And I don't think that the reasons that the court gives for it are persuasive. Okay, I think that's very persuasive. I might distinguish between laws that are uh, invalid constitutionally for, well, procedural reasons. So say fundamental justice under Section 7, there's a procedural flaw in the way that the process is undertaken. That procedural flaw has to be corrected. There are several prospects in terms of fixing it. Do you remove the entire regime for that procedural flaw when the consequence might be, and I'll use the example of the security certificate regime under the Immigration Refugee Protection Act, if you strike down the entire law, the persons who are detained pursuant to the immigration regime on the basis that they're at least alleged or believed by the government to be a peril to national security, those persons are immediately freed. And so do you do that because the adjudicative process is procedurally flawed or do you suspend the invalidation until such time as parliament can generate a procedural correction? So it might depend, in other words, about the nature of the wrong. So let me offer two points in response to that, which I get. And particularly in criminal matters, yes, there is a possibility that nefarious persons will go free. We actually have already accepted that in the way that we construct most of our criminal law principles. There is this risk that a factually guilty person may have to be released because the trial wasn't fair, because it wasn't held within a reasonable time, and so on. So I guess I, I don't really understand why we accept those risks when the law is constitutional, but once the law has been found unconstitutional, suddenly that risk becomes too great and we actually have to somehow keep that law in place. The other point I would make, and this is a controversial point, and it's not one that gives me any pleasure, but in a lot of these cases, the notwithstanding clause applies. So if the legislative branch feels that this is a severe enough situation where you have to maintain the law in place, I think it is better for the legislature to make that decision than the court. I actually think it draws the court into a, a, a level of dispute and political wrangling that is not good for the court as a whole. Fair point. I'm just a little confused because when we're talking about the remedies, I thought this, were, this was going to be a section about Section 24 of the Charter, which is about enforcement. And now I feel like I did my homework for nothing. And I would just like an explanation. Why is this outside of the Charter if we're talking about the Charter? Because I, yeah. I'm just like, I have so many questions. Yeah, great question. So the Supremacy Clause is outside of the Charter because it applies to everything in the Constitution. And as we discussed in one of our first podcasts, the Charter is only part of the Canadian Constitution. So you need the Supremacy Clause to be outside of the Charter so that it confirms the Constitution's status uh, with respect to all of the things that it guarantees, like division of powers and Indigenous rights and so forth. The other thing about the Supremacy Clause is it talks about laws. And it's really concerned with what do we do with laws that are inconsistent with the Constitution. There's also the very important position of the person who has launched the charter challenge and what remedy are they entitled to? So if their challenge is against a law, their remedy is captured by this broad supremacy clause. But if their issue is a particular state actor, let's say, for example, they want damages, they want monetary damages for the wrong they've suffered, then they will make an argument under a section of the charter, which is section 24 
which says that the court can order whatever remedy it thinks is just and appropriate for the person who has demonstrated a violation of their charter rights. And that remedial authority is very broad. It can include ordering a new trial, ordering that a criminal proceeding be stayed, ordering that certain documents be produced. They can issue an order that another government actor stop what they're doing. They can issue an injunction and they can certainly issue an order for monetary damages. I should just point out those don't don't tend to be that high, like nobody gets rich uh, launching charter claims, but there is that discretion. But that's to repair the wrong done to the individual as opposed to the deficiency with a particular statute. Well, there goes my pension plan. My retirement plan of getting rich based on frivolous charter challenges. (laughs) I don't know what I'm going to do now. So Charisma, just before we leave Section 24, so 24.1 sub 1 is this broad sort of remedial jurisdiction, but then there's a a more specific expression of remedial discretion the court has in subsection 2 that talks about suppressing evidence. In, in circumstances where the evidence might have been produced in an unconstitutional manner. I'm par- paraphrasing there. Now, that seems to hold out great promise, but I think this is another provision, 24 sub 2, where there's been a substantial amount of criticism because it's not nearly as absolute as, as that might suggest. There are instances, and some would say many instances, in which evidence has been collected unconstitutionally. And so, Stephanie, think in terms of evidence that might have been collected in violation of Section 8, the protections against unreasonable search and seizure, is that automatically suppressed? So, Charisma, what's the answer? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's interesting because when you look at the language of Section 24.2, it says, where the court concludes that evidence was obtained in a manner that infringed one of the charter rights or freedoms, the evidence shall be excluded. So it seems to mandate that the evidence be excluded, but then you have to keep reading. If it is established that, having regard to all the circumstances, the admission of that evidence in the proceedings would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. So you don't get an automatic exclusion of evidence just because it was obtained in a manner that infringed, say, your right against unreasonable search and seizure. You have to also demonstrate that the admission of that evidence into the proceedings would now have this effect on a totally separate factor, something that's totally unrelated to you as the litigant what would be the effect on the administration of justice? And there's dozens and dozens of cases that look at that, that have developed a framework, that have applied it in particular cases. And the fact is, there's lots of times where the court has said, admitting this into the proceedings would not bring the administration of justice into disrepute. So I suppose the concern there would be, so what's the downside for authorities to violate charter rights in the collection of evidence. And keep in mind, they're doing it for what they perceive to be a broader public interest. These are bad people we're pursuing and we're going to cut some corners and and acquire some evidence. So what's the downside if there's not an automatic exclusion of the evidence? And so it's entirely discretionary. They may get away with it. And so the concern is that the Section 8 protections, for example, that there's not enough of a deterrent on the state in circumstances where the state could have its cake and eat it as well. Uh, And so do you have an answer for that? Is there a principled counter-argument? Well, I believe that what the court has said is that the purpose of Section 24.2, so this is, again, employing the purpose of approach, is not to deter wrongdoing by state actors. It's to maintain the integrity of the administration of justice. I don't know how satisfying that is, but that's the way that the court has gotten around that, whereas in other systems, other jurisdictions, 
it's very much on visiting that consequence on state actors so that they have an incentive to be more cautious. And we haven't really taken that approach. So I just want to take this as an opportunity to thank you, Charisma, because I have learned so much. The charter is one of these things I think a lot of us think we know because when I was growing up, it was always put on the wall in the classroom and you could read it. And and we often invoke this idea of the notwithstanding clause. And it turns out that's a whole kettle of fish. But this has been a really interesting podcast series for me personally, because I I feel I've learned so much, whether it is about the way we think about free speech. And if we do want to put curbs on hate speech, the charter implications of doing that and how that would be difficult. And even today, just talking about remedies and and section eight violations and how that can and may or may not be addressed in future national security trials. So I think going forward, I'm going to yell about the courts to Craig a lot less, and I'm sure he will enjoy that. But I've learned so much, and I just wanted to thank you. And let me add my thanks, Charisma. It's been a real pleasure to have you on these six episodes of our Muskoka Chair Chats. I'd like to just signal to our listeners who have been listening along, give us a shout out. We, we are trying to do these special deep dives on issues, and we've had a couple of them so far where we run a theme through several episodes with a very learned guest. If you find them useful, let us know. Say something nice uh, and spread the word about our podcast series. Uh, we're, we're hoping that this is a, a useful public service. So once again, thank you very much, Charisma, for spending some of your summer with us. It was absolutely my pleasure. This has been such a nice introduction to the world of podcasting. I, I was a little nervous at first, and it's just been a joy to be with you guys every week. And yeah, I look forward to, to seeing what else Interpret has to offer. Thank you. And we'll be back at some point. I think, Stephanie, we may take a week off because we're all now contemplating the beginning of the academic term. So we'll probably take a week off and then we'll come back with, uh, well, to be decided at this point. Contemplating is <laughs> a word for it, but yeah, we'll see you soon. <laughs>